to Sunday School. It is July the 12th. Today we're going to take a look at the Doctrine of Providence. Uh, we're going to ask some hard questions about why things happen in the world that aren't so great. And we'll have a nice conversation about that. So stick around, check it out. No. Well, it's not possible. It's not possible. Hey, I'm getting ready to teach some Sunday school here in three minutes. So, anyway. Yeah. Okay, that's perfect. Thanks. Enjoy your she shed this morning. <laughs> Bye, Talisha. Bye. We are now recording Good morning. for podcast purposes, so we are doing the providence of God. There's just not that very many of us today, so I would encourage you to go ahead and leave your mics open if you want to, and we can um, we can try to have more of a conversation about this. Uh, one of the things that you need to think about before we even start this conversation, and it'll be evidenced as we get into uh, the quotes that I've, I've brought to you, is uh, there is a direct correlation between this doctrine of God's providence and the problem of evil. So providence and evil are directly related. So if we believe God is in control, then that has a direct correlation to the questions we have about the problem of evil, of why bad things happen. Um, so historically, there's been uh, three truth statements that are considered to be mutually exclusive. In the realm of theology and then the doctrine of providence, it's very difficult to affirm that all three of the statements I'm about to give you are all true. So here they are. I'll, I'll go slowly and then I can repeat any, because I didn't write these down. Um, so I'll go slowly. I can repeat any that you need. The first is that God is all powerful. The second is that God is all good. The third is that evil is real. So those are the three statements. God is all powerful. God is all good. Evil is real. One of those, if you're going to try to create a system, a theological system, one of those has to be false. And I think most of us in a vacuum would affirm all three of those things as true. So in every theological system, that discusses the providence of God, they essentially fudge on one of those three things. Um, you have questions or comments about that before we get going? I mean, do you see how they would be mutually exclusive to each other? Um, Hold on a second. So think about it this way. If, uh, if God is all good, 
and evil is real. So by real means embodied. So think of Satan in this sense. If God is, is good and Satan is real, then that must mean that there are limits to God's power, either limits outside of God or limits within God that inhibit God's ability to affect that. If, God, if evil is real and God is all power, powerful, then that means that there's something off in our understanding of what good means. Because our understanding of what good means would not gel with the horrific evil that we see around us if God had the ability to stop it. If God is all good and God is all powerful, and then evil is not real, that means that the evils that happen in the world are carried out uh, simply by, by humans uh, doing what we want, and that there's no embodied evil. Evil doesn't have an actual being. It's just bad stuff that we do or that happens in a fallen world. So you see how they would be, and even that, you still have questions about the other two, even if you affirm the unreality of evil. So any questions about that stuff? I mean, that's the theological game that we have to play just to even start having this type of conversation. So any questions or comments about those? Okay, I've pretty much given up. Uh, this will really help our conversation. I've pretty much given up trying to explain evil in any meaningful way. And I just kind of accept it as a reality. So great, Phil. So glad you could tell us that as we prepare to spend 45 minutes on this. Let's take a look at our document. Here it is. Okay, Who's the Boss? Everybody's favorite 80s sitcom is also the title of our Doctrine of Providence uh, conversation for today. So again, we're working with uh, Daniel Migliori's um, Faith Seeking Understanding. So some of these quotes are going to be from him. Some of them will be from uh, various theologians. Um, so it's a pretty it's pretty lengthy than what we've got today. So I'm going to kind of truck along. Um, so use your hand raising function uh, to stop me, um, and then I'll kind of uh, pontificate every once in a while about these things. Um, so here's kind of setting. Let's set the stage. Our quest for coherence must resist the temptation to build a system of ideas that pretends to know more than we do and thereby loses touch with both faith and lived reality. While we can have confidence in the truth of God revealed to us in Christ, our knowledge of God is not exhaustive. Just as the condition of faith is that of seeing only dimly, so all theology is necessarily broken thought. That's a quote from Karl Barth, whose name you see there. We will want to remember that name. This fact comes home to us nowhere more forcefully than when we affirm the providence of God and the face of the reality of radical evil in the world. So already we're starting off with this acknowledgement that there are huge gaps in our field of knowledge and the ways in which we understand how this all works in the world around us. So let's get a quote from the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563. Uh, this is going to come out of early Lutheran theology. The Heidelberg Catechism is also present in our Book of Confessions, so it is definitely uh, from our theological um, family tree. 
Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby he still upholds, as it were, by his own hand, heaven and earth together with all creatures, and rules in such a way that leaves all grass, that leaves and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Okay, so I'm going to stop this screen there. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting. In, in, in 16th century theology, there was strong belief, and this was true for ages, strong belief that God was at play in every single thing that happened. Every good thing or bad thing, God was at work in that. So that meant that they had a much, uh, they had a very strong understanding of God's providence, of God's direct intervention in the lives of human affairs. Uh, even to some degree to say, I mean, it was God's providence, Ken, that you would be wearing a red shirt today. That was absolutely part of God's plan uh, and that we should understand things that way. So it, then they would try to seek God's uh, purposes in everything that happened. And the belief was that you could manipulate God's purposes uh, through right belief or right action. So there was a strong, I, I feel like this was a manifestation of a theology that developed during a time of significant instability uh, in, in the world. You know, by 16th century, uh, the 16th century, Europe has come out of the Dark Ages. It's the beginning of the Enlightenment, but still and yet uh, you're getting tremendous upheaval. Uh, that's the century within which the Catholic Church uh, finally loses um, complete autonomy and control throughout Europe. Uh, that's the century in which uh, nations begin to assert their own theological dominance. Uh, so this is the century within which the Church of England comes about under, under Henry VIII. It's the century in which uh, Lutheranism rises in the German uh, city-states. Uh, it's the century uh, in which uh, there's a counter, the Counter-Reformation begins. Uh, Calvin is born in this century and will write into the uh, 17th century. So it's a, it's a significant time of tumult and upheaval. And the system, to me, seems to reflect that because it gives the illusion of, of very uh, minute, uh, a minute control by God, minute direction, so that God's in all things. This is not going to last, this system. Um, but it still and yet is, is with us uh, to some degree today and is part of our, our heritage. Any questions or comments before we move along? Isn't that the same system that says that the king of England is the king of England because God put him there? Yes, absolutely, Ken. Uh, the divine right of kings. And so, um, you know, I, like, for example, Henry VIII, as he was churning through wives in search of a son, um, very much would have understood uh, everything that was going on there within the idea that he had been placed as the head of England by God, and that his lack of a son or presence of a son was a manifestation of God's favor with him and with his realm. Um, so it really had fairly ca catastrophic consequences for statecraft, and it had catastrophic consequences, I think, 
for the lives of your average person. Because if your leadership is sitting there um, conceiving of themselves as having a special divine dispensation, historically we can see that doesn't necessarily lead to good behavior. Um, and so, yes, it, there is a, that, it's a great point. It, there is a direct correlation there between this type of heavy-handed providence and the divine right of kings. So good morning, Ann Smith. So uh, any other comments or questions before we kind of hop along here? <clears throat> okay, keep going. Okay, so there's a couple different types of evil here. I'm not really gonna read these, I don't think. Um, so there's natural evil, um, which I'll just read this quote from Tennessee Williams' play, Suddenly Last Summer, which gives you a good idea of natural evil. In his play, Suddenly Last Summer, Sebastian, who is searching for God, is driven to delirium by seeing the large birds over the Encantadas Islands swoop down to devour all but a few of the newly hatched sea turtles as they struggle to reach the sea. Having witnessed this carnage, Sebastian tells his mother, quote, well, now I have seen him, and he meant God. The shocking cruelty, terrible wastefulness, and apparent arbit arbitrariness of the manifold occurrences of evil in nature. So you've got natural evil, so think tornadoes, think hurricanes, and think even these micro evils that exist within the realm of nature. And then you've also got nature or evil that is worked out by people. Um, so it's equally impenetrable when we turn from the natural to the historical sphere of evil's operation. Simone Weil uh, shows in a valuable essay, affliction has many dimensions. It includes not only physical pain, but also social rejection and self-hatred. Above all, however, affliction makes God appear to be absent for a time. The experience of the absence or death of God is closely coupled with the experience of radical evil. So a couple of things to say here. Um, evil theologically is not so much uh, considered the direct action of some being or of God. It's more specifically related to the absence of God. Uh, in a little while, we're going to talk about the theological idea of nothingness. So as we have this conversation, when we, when we hear that language, the absence of God, death of God. You've heard of death of God theology and philosophy from really that kind of came about in the 60s in response to the Holocaust. A couple of prominent theologians talked about that. One of the most prominent was a Jewish uh, theologian and philosopher named Richard Rubenstein. Um, so the death of God is not the idea that God doesn't exist. The death of God is the death of the idea that God is active in all things. So this is the death of the idea that I just articulated for you from the 16th century that the Heidelberg Catechism would point out. The Holocaust specifically brought into significant question the idea that God was actively working in all things. So this led to the concept of evil as the absence of God or the death of God. So when you hear uh, death of God type theology or philosophy, what you're hearing is not atheism. What you're hearing is the end of the heavy-handed understanding of God's providence that permeated most 
monotheistic faiths up until the Holocaust, certainly Judaism and Christianity. So that's what we're getting at here. So this idea of absence or nothingness is in fact a nod to what happens and how evil manifests itself when God is not active and present. If you've been uh, listening to um, Stress to the Nines or you recall a, a Psalm that I preached on some time ago, Psalm, I think it's Psalm 53, um, starts out, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, that's called practical atheism, but that ties back into this idea. So once you say in your heart, there is no God, it opens up theologically, it opens up the possibility to create nothingness or the absence of God within the lives of other people. Because what you're doing is you're creating a, a bubble in within which you believe your actions have no consequence, but also that your actions are owed uh, no allegiance to faith or any sort of divine power. So do you see how those things wrap themselves up together? This idea of absence, nothingness, death of God with the collapse of the kind of very direct, heavy-handed providential theology from the 16th century. This is like technical stuff. I warned you. There's a reason there's only seven of us here today. Uh, so you have questions? Is that clear as mud? If you're going to go with the absence of God, that's like a God black hole. And, you know, and, and then are you not setting up something where God created a system but isn't actively involved? So that's, this black hole is allowed to exist. Mm -hmm. It's still part of God's plan, mm -hmm. but he's not actively involved. He, he set up a system. I mean, do, do all these things kind of swirl around each other like you were referring to? Or? They sure do. Now, we're going to get to a kind of 20th century, 21st century resolution to that problem by the end. But that's exactly what happens when you have, we get back to those three statements of absolutes, right? Filter them through the Holocaust. God is all good. God is all powerful. Evil is real. Right? So if you're filtering those through the Holocaust, then they do start to swirl around each other because what effectively happened in the Holocaust is the Nazi state was able to create a bubble within which there was no morality, even at the most basic level. Um, and so within the camps, there was an effective death of God. The Jews were not able to worship. They were denied their humanity. Uh, and then their, through their deaths and the staggering number of deaths, uh, they were denied any sense of hope. So they functionally created the space of that nothingness, of that absence of God in the classical sense, because God didn't do anything. Yeah, but if God's all powerful, then he obviously has the power to do something. Right. So that leads to the other question, then, is he not all good? See, that's the problem. This is the exact problem. And I, I still think if he created a system and hit the go button, you know, he's still all powerful. He still is good in the programming that he's done. There just happens to be a 
a bug in it or right. or there was intentional there's a, there's a bug in it right <laughs> yes exactly the bug so this what what you the the argument you would make there it sounds like ken is that evil is not real satan was not in the camps killing people it was human beings within the system that god had created exercising their freedom to create a space from which god was absent and the manifestation of god's absence was horror um now god, yeah go ahead ann what were you gonna say well god gives us the choice right there's this right there's this concept of freedom um but it depends on how you exercise that freedom right i mean right. And, and so the you have to in order to get people to behave like so many germans behaved uh around the holocaust in order to get people to behave like that you have to wrap that action in some sort of theological packaging or you have to remove the theological packaging altogether because humans are not inherently wired to behave that poorly at that scale. All of us, I think, are wired for sin and selfishness, but to really unwound, we need a lot of the structures that, that hold things in place to be taken away, which that's where you get into the failure of the German church. Um, the, the church was complicit in some very powerful ways by creating a permission structure which allowed for that nothingness, that absence of God uh, to be made manifest uh, within, within that context. Uh, I, that's why I, my favorite confession in the Book of Confessions is the Declaration of Barman, which was written in 1936, uh, directly in response to the rise of Nazism and the complicit response by the German church to that rise. So it takes a whole bunch of things to unravel to get to that scale. If you look at our own country, um, you can see that uh, certainly if you go back and look at some of the sermons that were preached uh, in white congregations during the slavery era of slavery, uh, where the permission structure was given uh, for people to maintain other human beings as chattel uh, for their own wealth and enrichment, you have to create a theological permission structure in order for that to be deemed permissible. Um, and so that happened. The, the pastors that were uh, unwilling to be complicit in, in slavery were functionally culled from slave states. Um, and we could go on a long conversation about this uh, another time. But it, when you go back and look at the theology, especially of the South uh, of that era and the theological changes that were made to doctrine then, um, you can, it's, it's really quite powerful. Um, but that has to happen. Yeah, Peter. So I think it's easier in some respects to, you know, when you're looking at the issues of evil or, or evil influences in the, in the world, to invoke free will when you look at the way people behave towards people. But how does, how do you deal with things like Ebola and, and coronavirus and all the, the, you know, <laughs> mosquitoes, you know, basically the things that, that 
that bring about awful circumstances uh, that aren't based on free will or, or human intervention. Yeah, so the natural evil question, the most common answer to that, uh, Peter, is that natural evil is a symptom of the fall. So when humanity broke off from perfect relationship with God, we drug, uh, we drug creation with us. And so therefore creation similarly functions in, in ways that uh, don't manifest God's good order. So if you think about it, like if you think about passages in the Psalms, uh, or is it Isaiah, where the lion shall lie down with the lamb, um, the child shall play by the hole of the asp um, and not be bitten. Um, these images of harmony uh, within nature, uh, within the idea of God's restoration of order, um, kind of speak to that issue. So therefore, the idea of uh, plagues, viruses, that sort of thing, historically are tied to the fall. I don't, none of these answers, I don't think, to be honest with you, are particularly satisfying. It's not like I can tell you that, and then you can say, oh, great. No problem now. I'm perfectly happy with the virus or the flood or the hurricane. Uh, or the earthquake or the tsunami. No problem. It's just a manifestation of the fall, right? I mean, it's not a satisfying answer. Um, but but it, within systems, within theological systems, uh, that has been, that's been the, the kind of primary answer. Yeah. What else do you want to say here uh, before we go back and look at our sheet? Okay, we're going to keep trucking then uh, through through this. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, well, let's see. I will. Uh, here's now Calvin's just kind of reiterating a lot of uh, a lot of what we've talked about. So I'm going to move on. So theodicy here. Theodicy is the theolo theological word for the problem of evil. So when you see theodicy, that's what that means. It means uh, what's, what's God doing when there's a virus? Why isn't that solved? Um, so here's a couple of arguments that have been made classically um, that maybe aren't very satisfying. One familiar argument underscores the incomprehensibility of God. We don't know why there's evil in the world or why it is distributed so unevenly. Um, we know we trust God and have patience. So one, evil's a mystery. Two, uh, another traditional argument interprets the experience of adversity as evidence of divine punishment or chastisement. According to this view, God so governs the world that both the good and the wicked receive what they deserve, if not in this life, then in the life to come. Three, another argument centers on the divine pedagogy that makes use of earthly sufferings to turn us to God. Christians are to view suffering as an opportunity for spiritual growth. Okay, so a couple of things I want to say there. One in particular on the second issue, because I hear this all the time, this idea that going back to Peter's question, why the hurricane, why the virus, why the flood, that that is a, a manifestation of God's punishment um, or God's chastisement. Uh, while you can make an argument for this theologically in scripture, 
I find it to be an incredibly and spectacularly flawed way of looking at the problem of evil and specifically natural evil in the world. Um, and the reason I find it flawed is because I think it takes tremendous, tremendous arrogance to be able to look at something happening in the world or happening in the life of another person and say with any degree of certainty that a specific behavior or action brought on that suffering or that consequence. So the reason this upsets me uh, so much is because I see it happening right now theologically in other churches and in other traditions where the pandemic is a manifestation of God's judgment uh, on America or on the world. And what always is the source of God's judgment is simply whatever sins that particular faith tradition holds to be the worst. Um, I think it's lazy theology. I think it is um, not intellectually honest theology, and it really upsets me. So there you go. I vented to you about it. But I would hope that as you encounter this, uh, if you do encounter it through relationships you have with people from other traditions, uh, certainly social media um, is an area where this sort of uh, thinking is pervasive. Uh, you know, definitely, even if you don't question it and interrogate it out loud, you should interrogate it quite seriously within your own mind and within your own heart. I, I just find it deeply, deeply troubling, uh, the casual nature by which we say, oh, well, we've got this deadly virus and God's punishing us for X, Y, or Z. Um, it, it's 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 real problem. Uh, you know, I, to give an example of what triggered me in history, I remember when um, there, was, uh, there was the earthquake in Haiti uh, sometime back and a prominent televangelist went on TV and said that this was Haiti's punishment uh, for the sin of voodoo. Um, yeah, not helpful at all. So that's the sort of uh, shenanigans that you get when people try to explain away natural evil with, uh, with their own bugaboos. So there you go. Uh, I'm going to go back to our screen unless somebody has something they want. Anybody want to say anything? Okay. That was my rant for the day. You're lucky. I'm sure you feel lucky to have been a part of it or not. Okay. So here's, um, Bart's argument. I want to skip down to, uh, the final third here, um, right here. It's what we've been talking about. Evil for Bart is the alien power of nothingness that arises mysteriously from what God does not will in the act of creation. As Bart understands it, nothingness is not nothing. While neither willed by God nor an equal of God, it has its own formidable and threatening power. Here's the definition of nothingness. It is that which contradicts the will of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Nothingness. God alone is able to conquer the power of nothingness. And here's a quote from Bart. The power of nothingness should be rated as low as possible in relation to God and as high as possible in relation to ourselves. So here's, again, that idea of nothingness. I think that sentence that I highlighted for you should be somewhat helpful. 
nothingness is that which contradicts the will of God manifested in Jesus Christ. So Bart's argument here is pretty straightforward. Within Jesus Christ, we have seen both what God desires and what God values. And in the world, it's not hard to correlate that which God desires and that which God values with behavior. When we don't do that, and when, in fact, we behave in contradiction to what God wills and God values in Jesus Christ, then we are bringing about nothingness, absence, evil, whatever you want to lay on that. And so obviously those are things that are large or small, but that's what we're talking about uh, with nothingness. So questions or comments about that? Okay, so let's get to, wait, do you have a question? Good? No. Okay. No. Yeah. On we go. So who's going to save us from this, uh, this terrible situation theologically in which we find ourselves? Who will come with some sort of modern uh, help to us uh, to frame things differently? Let's look to Jurgen Moltmann, who, congratulations, is still alive, not dead. Uh, Moltmann uh, began writing seriously in the 80s and 90s, still and yet today, uh, is, is prolific. Um, Moltmann's uh, book called The Crucified God uh, was a theological kind of game changer within Reformed theology in the, uh, in the 80s. And so Moltmann looked at the situation where we had found ourselves, we had rejected the kind of strong providential theology of the 16th century, and we had replaced it with a God who seemed to either be absent or weak. And Moltmann said, no, we've gotten it all wrong. So let's look at his Trinitarian theodicy. A Trinitarian understanding of God rooted in the revelation of God in Christ gives expression to the rich and differentiated expressions of God's relationship with the world as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God relates to creatures in ways appropriate to their own nature, to rocks and stones in one way, to plants in another way, to animals in another way, and human creatures in another way still. God is present with creatures both as co-agent and co-sufferer. Here's the shift. Highlight. There we go. God freely becomes vulnerable out of faithful love for the world. The destructiveness of evil and creation can be overcome not by divine fiat, but only by a costly history of divine love in which the suffering of the world is really experienced and overcome by God. In an often quoted passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Bible directs us to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering God can help. According to Moltmann, in his passion and death, the Son of God experiences suffering and death out of love for the world. But the Father who sent him on his salvific mission also experiences the grief of loss of the beloved Son. And from this event of shared suffering, Love, suffering love comes the spirit of new life and world transformation. All of the suffering of the world is encompassed in the affliction of the Son 
the grief of the Father and the comfort of the Spirit, who inspires courage and hope to pray and work for the renewal of all things. So here we get kind of a clear manifestation of how that works through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here as a creator, redeemer, and sustainer. The love of God, the creator and provider, is at work not only where life is sustained and enhanced, but also where all that jeopardizes life and fulfillment is resisted and set under judgment. Thus, the journey to the cross is not a re resignation to blind fate, but a loving consent to the righteous will of the Father that evil be resisted to the bitter end. So that's God the Creator, God the Father. Now God the Son, also the Redeemer. The love of God the Redeemer is at work both in the heights and in the depths of creaturely experience, both when the creature is strong and active and when it is weak and passive. It is thus fully congruent with the biblical witness to say that God is present as co-sufferer with all the wretched of the earth, whether in cancer wards or in concentration camps, as revealed in the covenantal history with Israel and supremely in the history of Jesus Christ, God accompanies the creature not only in its activity, but also in its agony and death. People who suffer are under attack not only by physical pain and social oppression, but also by a sense of worthlessness and abandonment. To speak of God's solidarity with victims is thus no mere rhetorical consolation, but a life-renewing affirmation. Now here, the sanctifier, the Holy Spirit. The love of God, the sanctifier, is at work everywhere, preparing for the reign of God, planting seeds of hope, renewing and transforming all things. The appearance of new life in the midst of death, wherever it may occur, is a sign that God's spirit is still at work, transforming the groaning creation and moving it toward the completion of God's purpose in Christ. God does indeed rule and overrule the events of each human life and all of history, but the way in which God rules and overrules a world of freedom, sin, and suffering is by the power of word and spirit, the power of sacrificial love that is stronger than death. What is certain is that the biblical witness is far less interested in speculation on the origin of evil than on resistance to it and confidence of the superiority and ultimate victory of God's love. The solution to the problem of evil is more practical than intellectual. Okay, so we trucked through that real fast, but the gist is this, that when we see God acting through the triune presence in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we see God's response to evil in a very different way. God's response to evil is twofold. Uh, again, this is rooted in the theology of Moltmann, and you saw it captured there in the end. His, resistance is, is, his response is twofold. One, that evil should be consistently resisted by the power of God through God's people in the world. And second, that God's superiority should be proclaimed and will ultimately be made manifest, and that that superiority was made manifest not in an act of power, but in an act of sacrifice. So the cross here is key. The cross is the ultimate 
evidence of the evil in the world, that God's son came into the world and the response of the world was to kill him. God responded to that death through suffering and then through resurrection, through the promise of hope and new life that would come out of torment and death. Torment and death are the manifestation of human sin. God's response to that sin is not punishment, but God's response to that is hope and resurrection. So therefore, what Moltmann constructs is a theology wherein God suffers along with humanity, and then God consistently renews humanity through the power of the Spirit, orienting us always toward a future which is promised to be evil-free and in perfect harmony with God. So the Trinitarian, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is very strong in Moltmann's response. Again, it's not satisfying, uh, ultimately, because what you want is you want God to come fix it. Um, but what Moltmann argues, and I think pretty persuasively, is the way God fixes it is by not abandoning us to it. So you can see how this is another response as well to that theology of nothingness, the theology of absence, the death of God theology, is that if you go back to the camps, God is present in the suffering as a co-sufferer uh, and therefore redeems the experience of those who suffered and died uh, by giving it ultimate meaning and purpose in the trajectory of God's work. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now. And what do you want to say? First, let's anything you want to clarify or go back and, and see again. Great. Okay. Uh, now, what do you want to say about Moltmann's argument? It takes a while to kind of absorb it. You've heard it echoed uh, in sermons. Tasha probably preaches this direction more than I do, um, but she will talk about God mourning with those who mourn, um, suffering with those who suffer. Um, that's this theology. Phil, for an all-powerful person to put themselves in a position of wanting to suffer, isn't there a psychological term for that that's not very good? <laughs> <laughs> Say more, Ken. I, I really don't know what to say. I can't remember that term. I wish Greg Roberts were here. But, yeah. I mean, if you're in control of everything, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, I feel bad for you. I want to suffer for you. Mm -hmm. I want to suffer with you. But mm -hmm. I have control over all of this. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't seem, doesn't seem good. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with it, right? I mean, is, again, you get back to the problem of why not just fix it? And there's no satisfying answer to that. I think um, the idea of God suffering with you, I think the most powerful thing that evil can do is make you feel alone. That's the most powerful thing that it can do, that where you feel, once you start to feel alone, then you start, I think, to feel as though your humanity is slipping away. And so I think that's kind of where this is, this is headed, is in terms of trying to redeem that experience of isolation that comes through evil. But your, your, your critique is correct. Why not fix it? 
Peter, you gonna? And I just, I was just gonna say this. This just enhances the notion that you've already put forward that the, that the argument is really unsatisfying because um, what you end up doing is you either limit God's omnipotence, uh, or as Ken is suggesting, he's either got a mixture of you know masochism and Munchausen's you know syndrome going. But, but the truth is that it really just it. What what it seems to come down to is don't ask. You know, quit fussing. Quit fussing about uh, evil because it really does it does um, muddy our understanding of or or acceptance of omnipotence and just accept that it exists and deal with it. And that seems yeah. to be his answer. And and when you get to that point, when you get to the point that's like, okay, this is reality. Okay. I think that's when the cross becomes the most helpful because God submitted to the same reality to which we submit. That's the key theological distinction. So when you say, okay, there's reality, people behave very poorly and treat each other very poorly and have historically sought to dehumanize one another. Uh, when you see that, and then you see God's response to that through Christ is accepting the exact same suffering and humiliation that humanity accepts. It does imbue that with, with some degree of meaning and purpose, even if that meaning and purpose is not wholly satisfactory. Um, that while God leaves us in this world, God does not sit outside of our suffering, but sits inside of our suffering. I think you have to remember, he walks with us and talks with, right. with us along yeah. life's narrow way. Uh -huh. I always think of that. Uh -huh. And I think also we're down, well, I won't say that, but we have to remember the Holy Spirit is alive and working in this world. And a lot of times we don't, we forget, I forget. Yeah, I think that's true for all of us. And, and again, think about this kind of where we landed with providence. Think about it in relation to that issue uh, that I have with judgment, right? So it's very different if you, if you go see your doctor and you're diagnosed with stage four cancer and you sit there and you think to yourself, this is going to be terrible, but I believe God will be within it with me. That's one mindset. Yeah. If you go in and you have the mindset of this is going to be terrible, I must have done something horribly wrong yeah. Yeah. in order for God to subject the, me to this. That's a fundamentally different mindset. Yeah. And yet that mindset is consistently crafted still today in this world. Rebecca? Well, here's a question. If, if looking at Christ's example shows us that over time, you know, Christ came, he suffered, and he showed us how to suffer and how to resist, and he died on the cross. Then does the remainder of his existence on earth show us as an example what we were either supposed to be or what we will become? In other words, a resurrected being, is that resurrected Christ more an example of humanity and what humanity was supposed to be? Or what does the rest of the experience that Jesus had in our world tell us about this? 
great question. Two things I want to say about this. First, if you go back to the idea of resisting evil, think about the work we did on the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you read those three chapters of Matthew as a, an instruction manual for resisting evil in the world, you're pretty well onto something. Think about the passages in there. Think about uh, passages about lust, for example, and the ways in which lust consistently wreaks evil in the world. Think about the love, the love of enemies and the ways in which objectifying enemies brings about evil. Think about the ways in which having faith, which, is, uh, which orients people back to you by your piety and, and your, look at, your look at me now uh, faith. Think about how that brings about evil in the world. You go back, so that's a huge part of Jesus's life is instructing us on how to resist evil. The last thing he does with his disciples is have them do what? Wash each other's feet. How would the trajectory and history of the church in the world be different if that had been embodied by every follower of Jesus? Radically. So the antidote exists and is right in front of our face. The second thing, I think, is what's called realized eschatology. So what's eschatology? Eschatology is the end of time. Eschatology is when Jesus comes back, redeems humanity. To me, the best image of eschatology is the very end of the book of Revelation, where you have a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, right? So every time we are able to do something or believe something, or tap into a feeling that will be a piece of that, we are dragging that future into the present moment. So Jesus's presence in our midst drug that future into our present perpetually throughout human history, which gets back to what Anne said about the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Spirit brings that future in tiny little pieces into our present. So those are the two things I think you see most clearly manifest in the life of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus. The cross is really the manifestation of the world and God's response to the world, which is not to obliterate. Remember when, when God flooded the world, uh, he said, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. So the next thing he tried was the cross. If you want to think about it that way. Um, so, so that would be my answer to your question. I hate to think that God screwed up. <laughs> I mean, you say that the flood happened. Oops, that didn't work. Yeah. So I'm not um, all knowing. I'm not all omnipotent. I screwed up. Yeah. That doesn't seem to jive with the rest of no, the, the idea, God's omniscience uh, is, I, I think if you want to go by the most rigid biblical interpretation, that's the most logical one to fudge on. Because um, you do seem to get this idea. Think about the passage where uh, they're, they're leaving uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham uh, starts negotiating with God of like, well, if I can find 500 righteous people, God, will you spare it? Okay, well, what if I can find 50 righteous people, God, will you spare it? And there's this negotiation that goes on and they go this kind of back and forth about that. There, there's a much more 
you know, like God's wandering through the Garden of Eden and they're hiding and God can't find them. Um, you think about Job and the ways in which God seems to treat Job uh, like, a, like a bet. I mean, Job's life is essentially a wager uh, with Satan and, um, and that's how they explain suffering uh, there. Job does everything right and still and yet loses everything. And then at the very end, you get the Hollywood ending where it's like, oh, his wealth is restored and he gets a new wife and she has a bunch more sons. I mean, so there is this constant wrestling in scripture with how much does God know and control. And scripture wrestles with that consistently through. So by the time you get to Revelation, you get a very strong doctrine of God's power that isn't always manifest. Remember, uh, um, oh gosh, Jonah thought he could run away from God. He thought God was geographically isolated. I mean, so did the Hebrews. That's why they set up the tent of the tabernacle everywhere they went in the desert, is because God had to have a place to live, because God wasn't everywhere at all times. God was in a very specific place. So this, you know, whether or not it's our understanding of God that changes over time, or whether or not there's a lot more mystery to God's omniscience. Scripture gives a lot of wiggle room for where God is, how much God controls, and what God knows. It's like the old political uh, line, what did God know and when did he know it? Are we leaving out emphasizing the love of God? Or yeah, the love I, of I hope not, Anne. I mean, you know, and I hope that's what Moltmann's uh, solution is does a little bit better than some of the others is to emphasize that love of God. Um, that ultimately, for all the mystery that we find around the problem of evil in scripture, there's not a tremendous amount of mystery as it relates to God's love, uh, certainly not when you root it in Christ. It seems pretty clear. And I always try to say, well, I say it, but I don't do it, to look at people like God looks at people. I can say it in the morning when I'm doing my devotionals. I'm sitting at night at prayer, but, but then I go out and during the daytime, I'm just, I'm, I am looking at people like I am. That's right. I know we're very <laughs> poor at that, uh, especially in like this day and age. I mean, you know, now I reduce everybody to whether or not they're wearing a mask or not. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wear your mask. Yeah. I don't care who you are. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we'll get to. That's a good segue because next week, Anne, is the image of God. And so we'll be talking about the image of God and humanity's uh, relationship to that. Next week, you'll get Tasha for Sunday school and you'll get my uh, sermon on the issue. Any final thoughts today before we wrap up? Okay. Hey, good talk, everybody. Okay. Thank you. Good way. Thanks. Bye. 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 Listening today, just a reminder that you can catch Sunday School each week on this podcast. We will have the audio of it ready for, for you. Uh, you can also join us live via Zoom every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Thanks for checking us out. Until next time, peace. Thank you.